Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, in, the, in our weekly satsang, as promised last week, we are going to start looking a little bit in some, in a very important category of yoga texts, of texts of the Indian spirituality, the so-called Upanishads of yoga, which are very, very relevant because they reinforce the texts of yoga. The, especially the Hatha Yoga, Laya Yoga, Kundalini Yoga tradition, which is represented a lot here in Agama, which is coming from obscure and rare texts such as the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Goraksha Shataka, the Shiva Samhita, the Geranda Samhita, out of which already one of them, I have commented it during the previous two seasons, the Geranda Samhita. And as I said, if uh, Hatha Yoga, if the yoga tradition would be limited to those texts, then uh, it would be a vernacular tradition. It would be something, it would be a niche. But we know, of course, that yoga, even in its form of Hatha Yoga, was witnessed by the Westerners who went to India in the 15th century or in the 18th century or in the early 20th century, before yoga came to the West and became a fitness industry and a fad and a hippie thing, before those times, of course, Hatha Yoga, the Hatha Yoga tradition, the yoga which is done with attitudes of the body, and not only, with breathing, with all the other, with mantras, and with all the other instruments of yoga, this yoga tradition was encountered all over India. So it was not only a niche belonging to one of the geographical quarters of India or to a few schools or to a few orientations. And that's why we realized that all these traditions of yoga, which made uh, that yoga was all over India, in the north of India, in the south of India, in the east of India, and in the west of India, these traditions uh, of yoga, they are coming from a very diverse groups of texts. It is very, very important to connect yoga with the Upanishads because if texts like Geranda Samhita, Shiva Samhita, they can be considered tantric texts and Tantra is a, sometimes a bizarre name because it can mean a very limited orientation or lineage in yoga. The Upanishads, on the other hand, are part of the Vedantic and Vedic tradition. They are unanimously accepted. And uh, the Upanishadic texts, if they speak about yoga, and if they speak about mantra, breathing, meditation, visualizations, if they speak about pranayama and mudras and asanas, position, postures of the body and all the others, then suddenly the yoga tradition looks as much more than what it appeared first to be. It's not just a marginal phenomenon reserved to a few tantric traditions, uh, tantric texts. It is a pan-Indian, it's a general Indian tradition, stretching in all the Hindu tradition of today's Pakistan, India and Bangladesh, and of course some parts of Nepal, and perhaps even some parts of today's Tibet. 
And in this way, this uh, tradition of yoga is legitimized. We understand why this word yoga was used by Krishna in Bhagavad Gita when he spoke about the yoga of the selfless action, the yoga of knowledge and such things. Why this name yoga is so widespread and... uh, That's why it is a joy for me to show you yoga, not only from the Yoga Sutra in the classical yoga, not only from the Shiva Sutra and the Kashmiri Shaivistic tradition, not only from Geranda Samhita and Shiva Samhita in the Kundalini Yoga, Laya Yoga tradition, but also from the Upanishads, which connect yoga with the Vedas, with Vedanta, with the mainstream spiritualities of India, or at least with the dominant, with the majority spiritualities of India, in this way defining very clearly the universal role of yoga in the Indian spirituality, and the fact that it is not only related to this or that lineages or regional traditions, but it is related with the very core of spirituality in those parts of the world. And thus, I just wanted, and uh, it was asked of me from some of the advanced disciples here in Agama, to show you the connection of yoga uh, with the Upanishads, with this main spirituality. And first, to make you understand where we go, before I comment one of the Upanishadic texts of today, let me give you a few scholarly information about about the Upanishads. What are these famous texts called Upanishads? So the Upanishads, in a scholarly definition, are a collection of texts that contain some of the central philosophical concepts of Hinduism in general, some of which are shared with Buddhism and Jainism. There are Upanishads which define philosophical concepts that are transcending the limit of the Hindu religion and they are simply philosophical and therefore those concepts uh, can be encountered in Buddhism, in Jainism. Buddhism, Jainism are conceptually or administratively speaking, they are very different religions from Hinduism although they come from the same cradle, from the same geographical area. The Upanishads are considered by the Hindus to contain utterances like heard truths, revealed truths called Shruti, so revelations concerning the nature of the ultimate reality, which in the Upanishads and in Vedanta is called Brahman, the name of God in the main Hindu spiritualities, is replaced by a very powerful word called Brahman. And Brahman is a word which is very misunderstood by the Westerners because it's very close to the words Brahma, not Brahman, but Brahma, and Brahmin. And Brahmin means a priest belonging to the highest caste of Indian society. And Brahma is a name for the creative part of God, Brahma, the creator, the God with four faces, sometimes worshipped even in Thailand 
for its connection with Muladhara Chakra and prosperity issues. Whenever you go in Bangkok and you see a shrine of a Hindu-looking deity with four faces, looking in all the four directions, that's actually Brahma, imported in the Thai Buddhism, accepted, in the grafted in the Thai Buddhism, in the Theravada Buddhism. And then there is Brahman, which is a philosophical word, a very powerful philosophical word in Vedantic, in the Vedic and Vedantic philosophy. Brahman is a word which is neutral in grammar. It's neither he nor she. It's it. It's like an object. And it's beyond gender. And Brahman is a word which would be translatable in English closely to saying the absolute. The absolute with a capital A. So, I am consecrating the fruits of my action to the absolute. Who is the absolute? Allah, Vishnu, whatever. It, it doesn't matter. For them it doesn't matter. The absolute is the absolute. And there can be only one absolute. If there would be another one, then they would be relative to each other. And if they are relative, then they are not absolute. The absolute is the one. So Brahman is a very powerful word, which is very comfortable philosophically to people who have problems of admitting the existence of a personal God. The existence of a personal God forces the human being to have an attitude, an emotional attitude, like I am the servant of God, I surrender to the will of God, may thy will be done, or I love God. And for many people, this choice is very difficult. Like many people are blocked in surrendering themselves and their personal will to some hypothetical cosmic entity. And many people cannot find it possible to love something which they cannot understand or something which they cannot prove the existence of. And that's why... Many people find themselves blocked in having an, a, a relationship with God. With Brahman, it's very comfortable emotionally on Manipura and Anahata, which where people have these blockages and imp these impurities. Because with Brahman, you can only have a relationship of awe, like in front of the infinite. And for the rest, you don't need to relate to it. And that's why many people philosophically feel much more comfortable with an absolute which is called the Buddha nature or Nirvana or Dharmakaya or Brahman because people say, well, there might exist a universal field of energy, a universal consciousness which we don't understand and which is beyond space and time. And, you know, like I can relate to that, but if I have to fall on my knees and worship it, then I feel awkward about it. So Brahman is like taking the spirituality directly to Ajna and Sahasrara and sparing you of the spirituality of Manipura and Anahata where you are supposed to have an emotional attitude towards God, to relate with God more in a personal way. And that's why the ultimate reality is called Brahman. It's very comfortable in a way and it has a downside to it by which uh, some people, like Sri Aurobindo, great yogis I'm talking about, they have qualified Vedanta as being a sort of a Hindu Marxism. 
Like you can have social ideas belonging to socialism and left-wing philosophies, ultra-democracies, ultra-equalitarianism, Marxism, and basically be skeptical and consider like Marx did that religion is the opium of the masses, that religion is outdated and obsolete, and it's all a lie and an illusion. And then you have a religion which is Brahman, but that religion is with a God which is so distant and so high up in the chakras that it doesn't elicite or produce any emotional reaction in you. I believe in God, but it doesn't mean I have to be non-violent. It doesn't mean I have to tell the truth. It doesn't mean I have to control my sexual energy. Like there are no consequences in my activity, life, emotions and so on. Because this God in which I believe is a sort of extremely detached, extremely disconnected God up there in Ajna and Sahasrara, which you don't see, you don't feel, you don't understand, you don't embrace. And it's like I can say... um, Glory to Brahman, the universal consciousness. And now let's go and do some shit. No, like it it doesn't apply. It doesn't make me react or live in a certain way. So there is a downside to this very abstract spirituality. That this very abstract spirituality does not produce very often moral, ethical, emotional, psychological, mental efforts and consequences in the human being. So there is an upside and a downside. The upside again is that it's more palatable for people that have blockages and they feel awkward about the concept of God. But the downside is that this God can be like Nietzsche's God. It can be a dead God. God is dead. Like, yeah, all honor be to Brahman. And down here, I'm doing Marxism. No? So it's like, it's a sort of a spirituality without consequences in the daily life which is not really the way the spirituality should be. Because if you are really spiritually interested, you use a mantra, you stand on your head, you do pranayama, you refrain from killing and harming and doing other similar things. And therefore, actually spirituality transforms our lives. It has an effect in our daily behavior. So, sometimes this Vedantic ultimate reality is a little bit too abstract and some people, you know, like the human beings always want to find a way to indulge into their inferior tendencies without having to change their lives or to make too much effort. And unfortunately, this exalted concept of Brahman, uh, if it is not connected with something in our hearts, it's a little bit too dry. So... The Hindus consider that the Upanishads are texts about the nature of Brahman and describing the character of and uh, the path to human salvation, which is called moksha or mukti. So, of course, as most of you know, and this has to be clarified, and in yoga courses we do a bit of that, and in the metaphysical workshop and others we go fully deep into that, the purpose of spirituality in India is to attain salvation, it was to attain liberation. And the Upanishads are talking about that. The Upanishads are commonly referred, and it's not a completely correct scholarly name, as Vedanta. 
when you talk about Upanishads, you say that's the Vedantic tradition, variously interpreted to mean the last chapters, parts of Veda, or the object, the highest purpose of the Veda. Veda, Anta, in Sanskrit, Anta means end. Veda, Anta, the end of the Veda, like the upper end, the top end of the Veda, of the Vedic tradition. That's because, just to make a little parenthesis here, that's because the Vedas are very old texts and they have lost their direct relevance to people because they are created by people's minds 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago or more at a time when people didn't even know the technology of iron or whatever, perhaps in the Bronze Age or something. And because of this, people's minds and circumstances were very, 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 very different. And that's why the Vedic tradition had to be updated. And Veda updated itself in Vedanta. Like Veda distilled. It's a distillation of the Veda. And that's kind of the modern Veda. The modern access to Veda called often Vedanta. The concepts of Brahman, which is the ultimate reality, the absolute, and Atman or the spirit, the Supreme Self, as it's called by Ramana Maharishi, are central ideas in all the Upanishads. And this idea, know your Atman, exactly like the Greek injunction, gnosithe auton, know thyself, know yourself, uh, these are their thematic focus. So the Upanishads are really, really focused on the main spiritual practice. The Upanishads are the foundation of Hindu philosophical thought in general. They constitute the majority of the Hindu philosophical thought nowadays and of many of its diverse traditions. Of the Vedic corpus, they alone are widely known. There are some Hitas, Brahmanas and others. They are very only scholars read those. But the Upanishads, many people have heard about Upanishads and occasionally might have even read paragraphs selections or even fully one or several of them and the central ideas of the Upanishads are at the spiritual core of the Hindu traditions. When people like Western philosophers and so on, they started going into Indian philosophy, first they found Upanishads. More than 200 Upanishads are known of which the first dozen or so are the oldest and most important ones they are the core ones. They are referred as the principal Upanishads, the main Upanishads called in Sanskrit Mukhiya Upanishads, the mouth Upanishads. And the very Sanskrit term Upanishad comes from the three roots U, Pa, Nishat. And U means at and Pa means feet, like in Padahastasana, at the feet. And nishat means sitting down. So sitting down at the feet, which means sitting down at the feet of the guru. It retranslates to sitting at the feet, referring to the student sitting down near the teacher while receiving esoteric knowledge. The Upanishads are supposed to have been given in such circumstances like at this, where the students attend together with the teacher and this is given in a direct way. The authorship of most of the Upanishads is uncertain and unknown. Sarvepali Radhakrishnan, a great scholar in Sanskrit, who was the president of India as well at some time, literally says 
almost all the early literature of India was anonymous. We do not know the names of the authors of the Upanishads. So the people who did the Upanishads, the gurus who wrote them down or spoke them and pupils wrote down, they didn't want their name associated with the Upanishads. Like all glory be to God. The Upanishads are a scholarly attitude of Karma Yoga. Exactly as the Bible is in Christianity supposed to be written not by Tom, Dick and Harry, but by the Holy Spirit. So the authorship goes to God. Well, the Upanishads don't say literally so, but they simply omit the name of the earthly author, in this way letting them like they belong to the Spirit. They don't belong to this person or to that person. They belong to the universal spirit. It is a form of consecration. It is a form of spiritual karma yoga. Like doing karma yoga in terms of knowledge and spirituality. Most of the Upanishads are dated as belonging somewhere between around the year zero. Between 100 years before Christ and 300 years after Christ. So about 2,000 years old, with some Upanishads, some of the earliest ones going 800 years before Christ, before Buddha himself, like really old, and some of the Upanishads having been written even in the 15th century, so quite late in the medieval history of India. And that's why there is a diversity of styles. And um, Two concepts, as I said before, are of paramount importance in the Upanishads, are always Brahman and Atman. The relationship between God, expressed as the Absolute, and Atman expressed, some people would call it the soul, but the soul is a psycho-emotional, is a psyche, and because of this we prefer rather to use the name Spirit, because that's the direct reflection of the Universal Spirit. And uh, as it is announced by scholars today, I forgot exactly who was the first philosopher who translated Upanishads, a German philosopher, maybe Schopenhauer, I'm not absolutely sure, and who said it, that's a statement which in philosophy is very valid, when it said that the idea that is put forth in the Upanishads, that by these Upanishadic seers, whoever they were who wrote these things or dictated these things, that Atman and Brahman are one and the same, I am that, this is one of the greatest contributions made to the thought of the world. Like, indeed, this is not only monotheism, this is almost, in some situations, Vedanta goes totally Advaita, non-dualistic, and these are actually examples of full-on monism, or non-dualism. And that's very rare. There is a part of the Upanishadic tradition which goes as far as Advaita and therefore it touches the highest levels of spiritual knowledge in India. The Upanishads being as many in number, I just for your information, and I don't know if we'll get to do all of them in this season, I have about 10 of them on my list Let's see how long time they will take because I've never done these satsangs before. And approximately 20 of them, they are called in the tradition, uh, they are called Yoga Upanishads. Upanishads of Yoga. 
and some of them are related with Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Atarva Veda on numbers, and the one which we are going to look into today, the first one of our series, which is called Mahavakya Upanishad. Vak means logos, speech, and Mahavakya means the great speech, the Upanishad of the great speech. This one is related with Atarva Veda, and therefore it's one of the 20 which are. There are Mukhya Upanishads, which are uh, several in number, as I said, about 15 of them, 12 of them. There are Samanya Upanishads, Sanyasa Upanishads, Shakta Upanishads, Shaiva Upanishads, Vaishnava Upanishads. According to their orientation, there are tendencies in them, but about 20 of them, very little known ones, like when people talk about Chandogya Upanishad, Kena Upanishad, Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad, Isha Upanishad, and Mandukya Upanishad. These are the core ones. This you can study in philosophical courses in the universities. But when it comes to the Yoga Upanishads, these are very vernacular, they are very peculiar, they are very limited in circulation because they contain many technical concepts of yoga and because of this they are not really known. That's why I, it's one of the reasons for which I chose to make comments on some of these very little known Upanishads at the same time making them known to you and at the same time giving you access to a more universal approach to yoga to the Vedantic approach to yoga as we do with the Yoga Sutra to the classical yoga with Geranda and Shiva Samhita to the Laya, Kundalini, Hatha Yoga, and as we do with Kashmiri Shaivism to the Shaiva Yoga of the North. The four main orientations of yoga in India. Out of them, the Vedantic Yoga, um, I did not make many comments about it, although great gurus and many of my spiritual heroes, like Swami Shivananda, Paramahamsa Yogananda, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, they were very, very Vedantic. Their yoga was very much related to Vedanta. And I would be uh, unfair to say that their yoga and their approach to yoga has influenced me a lot in my youth in yoga. And it gave me a lot of determination and a lot of aspiration in uh, yoga. And doing this, I'm returning some of this beautiful energy to you and I hope it gives you some of the aspiration about practicing spirituality. Sometimes Vedanta is not as uh, colorful as the tantric forms of yoga that we teach in Agama, and Vedanta can be sometimes dry, and it can be dualistic instead of monistic, and therefore it creates a battlefield, like there is a battlefield between ignorance and knowledge. There's a battlefield between before getting hypnotized by maya, by the illusion, or waking up and perceiving the spiritual goals and having the discrimination to go there and practice. And that's why uh, the Vedantic tradition is slightly different, but when you understand it correctly... It is a great motivator in your spiritual practice. 
And the Mahavakya Upanishad starts with a very explicit verse, which says, in those days, it's a formulation almost like you say, once upon a time. Like it's not said when. In those days, in uh, Latin scholarship, in Western, therefore, academic scholarship, there is a term which illustrates this, which is called ilo tempore. Tempore means time, and ilo means like once upon a time. It means nothing precise. It's uncertain time. Ilo tempore is the time of God. It's a time which is neither past nor present nor future. It's all three of them. It's a time. Exactly like Patanjali, when he speaks, when he starts Yoga Sutra, for those of you who remember my commentaries on Patanjali on the Sutra number one, he says, Atha, like now I will give you the knowledge of yoga. But this now is past, present and future. It's an eternal now. It's not only 2,000 years ago when Patanjali spoke. It's now. The knowledge of yoga is always now. Because it's in ilo tempore. It's something which is beyond space and time. It's the nature of the Absolute. And therefore, even this one starts with an ilo tempore. Exactly like fairy tales. Not, not coincidentally, fairy tales go once upon a time. Like when? Doesn't matter. Because we are talking about an archetypal reality and it's happening all the time and in no time. It's ilo tempore. In those days, says Mahavakya Upanishad, in those days Brahman the Lord announced. It's like Brahman spoke. Brahman is not a god, a deity, doesn't have a face like Brahma, Vishnu or Shiva. Brahman and yet announced how. Of course, always many of these things come through prophets, seers. It's somebody who says, listen, O Israel, the God your Lord says. Like, really? What if we choose not to believe you? You know, how do you demonstrate that it's really God that says this? We can always exert disbelief in this respect. So, of course, here it's like somebody is megalomanic and grandomanic. Let me tell you what Brahman the Lord said. It's like, okay, we may choose to make fun of it, you know, like it's, it's not that. But of course, they don't take that into account. For them, that's their reality. So whoever wrote this chose to put in the beginning these crazy words, which automatically turn these things either in madness or sacred wisdom. There is no middle ground in this. Either it's somebody who is mentally gone, or it's somebody who is sacred and wise. In those days, Brahman the Lord announced, the doctrine that I will reveal, so it's obviously here, surpasses a lot the possibilities of an ordinary mind. That's what God says. I'm going to say something which normal mind has difficulties in grasping. Something that surpasses a lot. And in the shloka number 2, in the strophe, verse at number 2, it continues, it's still Brahman speaking, the quotation marks continue. Secret of secrets, it must not be divulged, but must, like, you don't just go around and throw pearls to the swine. It's secret of secrets, it must not be divulged, but must be kept only for the sattvic man. 
So it defines here. Some of you don't know yet what sattva means, but sattva in the tradition of India and in the classical yoga is a very important word because it means somebody who is not of an inferior type. If you are tamasic, you are an animal engrossed in your body. And if you are rajasic, you are an ambitious person full of desires who is ready to destroy the world just to satisfy your ego. The tamasic person is lazy and ignorant, inert, and the rajasic person is hyperactive and destructive. Both of them are a catastrophe for the human condition, and the only accepted one for spirituality is the sattvic condition. Sattva means the one which is balanced, the one which is wise and harmonious, the one which is... You hear more about this in our second level courses where we give a special lecture about the three gunas and uh, there is more development teaching about that in our Agama courses. Here I cannot stop and start making a definition of the gunas. You find the definition of the gunas also in the Bhagavad Gita if you want to look for it outside of Agama. The Bhagavad Gita consecrates two, three chapters of its 18 chapters to defining what is tamasic, what is rajasic, what is sattvic. So, Brahman in Mahavakya Upanishad says, such teaching as what follows here must not be divulged, is not to be taken lightly, must be kept only for the sattvic man, so for the person who is balanced and oriented towards spirituality, the person who escaped from the hell of ignorance and apathy, and who escaped from the hell of desire, and hyperactivity. A person who has reached a balanced middle, um, the middle path of the Buddha. The sattvic man who interiorized, like the sattvic man is usually interiorized, like thinks a lot about the inside, not, not losing himself outside, and invulnerable to the illusion of the world. Like the illusion of the world says, you could... Uh, I don't know, you could go to Las Vegas and if you get lucky, you could beat the roulette and make a million dollars. That's Fata Morgana. That's just glamour. That's just the hypnosis of the world, which says, yeah, you could do a lot of things. That's called Maya. So he says to the sattvic man who interiorized and invulnerable to the illusion of the world, like the world keeps luring me that you could make a lot of things and Wise people know that these things are a lie and an illusion. And you have to be very, very childish and very, very candid to believe that the world works like that or that that is the essence of things. And that's why the sage, either it's a Christian saint or it's a Hindu sage or it's a Buddhist arhat, they are invulnerable to the illusion of the world. Like I've been there... I've done that, it's finished for me. You know, it's like you're not going to seduce me with this Fata Morgana, with this, like a butterfly, like a moth, jumping in a flame and burning its wings in the process. That's what this illusion of the world is. So to the person who interiorized and invulnerable, wishes to hear it. So the person who wishes to hear it and who is oriented spiritually... That's for whom this teaching is, says Brahman himself. End of quote. And then now the text starts 
telling us a few things. He says there are two attitudes, knowledge and ignorance. Either you are a knower, a knowledgeable person, and knowledge here is not interpreted as intellectual knowledge, as you will see, on the contrary, actually, and there is the knowledge of the spiritual things, or the ignorance. Even Buddha, while he defined four noble truths and a lot of other things by numbers, which should be done and so on, even Buddha, eventually, when he reduces things to one factor, he says the cause of ignorance, I'm sorry, the cause of pain, because he says there is pain, there is suffering in this world, and he says the cause of suffering is ignorance. The only way to defeat suffering is to acquire the actual knowledge. But again, that knowledge is not the knowledge which you acquire from a lecture, and it's not the, the knowledge which you acquire from a book. This knowledge is only preparing you, it's laying the foundation, and it's showing you where to look. But then you still need to go and look. You need to walk that talk, because without walking it, just talking it, is only the first step. So knowledge for them means more than intellectual knowledge. But he says, if you simplify things, there are just two attitudes, knowledge and ignorance. The Tibetan yogis say that this is the beginning of the five elements in Vishuddha Chakra. The fifth element is either characterized by the wisdom of total knowledge or it is characterized by ignorance. It's as simple as that. So all the universe of the five elements is ultimately the key which opens the gate to it is knowledge and ignorance. That's the key poison. That's the essential poison out of which all the others are derivatives. And he says the first one, which means knowledge, liberates, it makes you free, it will give you moksha, mukti, and the second chains, or binds you, makes you prisoner. Even Jesus says it in a different way when he says, and the truth shall make you free. We can, it's a double entendre, we can understand it, the truth, like truthfulness, but the truth with a capital T, it means that you actually are a knower, you are knowledgeable, you know. So therefore, the lack of ignorance, says Jesus, will make you free, which is the same message. But one must know that those two are closely connected. Because they are the doorstep on Vishuddha Chakra. And if your Vishuddha Chakra goes out of balance, then your knowledge becomes a, a skewed knowledge. And this skewed knowledge is equivalent to ignorance. There are people who think that they know. For example, there are people out there because somebody or several people actually wrote some imbecilic books who believe know that the Manipura Chakra, the third chakra, would be yellow in color. And if they need to activate their Manipura Chakra, they could as well visualize yellow or dress themselves in yellow or something. You can dress yourself in yellow for a century, non-stop, and your Manipura Chakra will not activate even this much, because yellow does not come in Manipura Chakra. 
So whoever put that knowledge there, that yellow is on Manipura Chakra or that Manipura Chakra is yellow, is a devil, has done the work of the devil because that is misinformation. Millions of people are misinformed that Manipura Chakra is yellow. And therefore, understand that sometimes there is knowledge, but because that knowledge is poisoned, then it's not knowledge, it's actually ignorance. And you try to say, I have pumped a lot of yellow in my belly button area, or even better, I've pumped a lot of yellow in my solar plexus, because on top of thinking that it's yellow, you also think that it's placed here. And you simply said, I honestly visualized a lot of yellow coming here, and I don't know why I still suffer of a cancer in my stomach. Because you are not working in Manipura, and because you are misinformed. And that knowledge is not knowledge. So not everything that we know, or that we think that we know, is knowledge. Is knowledge in the meaning of Mahavakya Upanishad. Knowledge is only the knowledge. The actual knowledge. The knowledge which is archetypal. Which comes from above. And that's why here he says, one must know that this knowledge and ignorance are closely connected. You are on the same, it's like a seesaw. You are on the same level still. And he continues, he or she or it continues, by saying in the fourth verse it, the origin of ignorance is the inert darkness or tamas. He compares them with tamas and rajas, but he doesn't insist very much. He just speaks about ignorance mostly. The origin of ignorance is the inert darkness or tamas. The, this physical world entirely, from Brahman to inanimate objects, like from God to an atom, is actually darkness. This is a typically Vedantic doctrine. Tantrics would say that this world from Brahman to the last object is Shakti, is Prakriti, is Mother Nature, and therefore that you can interact with it in a constructive way. But the Vedantins don't have this teaching. The Vedantins simply want to go to the Spirit directly. And that's a very refreshing attitude, because it's like a shortcut. This shortcut is painful, and sometimes it is radical, but at the same time it gives the advantage of this simplicity, which sometimes your reptilian brain, your primitive nature, loves. Like, I'm devoted, or I'm not devoted. I'm with, or I'm against. I feel for it, or I don't. Sometimes the human being just needs to be the partisan of something. And Vedanta is very good at this. Because it makes things black and white. So he simply says, this physical world entirely, physical world entirely, from Brahman to inanimate objects, is actually darkness. So this, he means, is ignorance. He says, if you know the stars... Like you are an astrophysician and you study astrophysics. He says this is darkness, it's ignorance. This kind of knowledge of the physical world and others, it belongs to Maya. It's darkness. You will not discover the reality in it. 
So he's very radical in this way. Many, many of the sages of India and of the Orient have been very dismissive to the modern science, which became so matter-oriented, so chemistry and atoms-oriented. And then they said, what, you think that if you have discovered a million chemical substances, now you know? You don't know the essence. It's a, it's a maya. It's just a dispersed type of knowledge. So such a, it comes from the Upanishads. This is not the invention of uh, Swami Shivananda. It's uh, the Upanishadic spirit, which says the origin of ignorance is darkness, tamas. This physical world entirely from Brahman to inanimate objects is actually darkness. And to give more characteristics of it, says born out of an egg. You remember that even here in Agama, when we draw the universe, we draw it as an egg divided in seven slices. This is not my metaphor. And it's not the metaphor of my teachers. It is a strictly Hindu Indian metaphor that the universe is described as having the shape of an egg. And it's called Brahmanda, Anda, egg. And Brahma, Brahma, the creator, the egg of Brahma. The universe is the egg of Brahma. By analogy with birds and other creatures for whom the microcosm and the macrocosm is like an egg. An egg is complete in itself. It's 100%. It contains a microcosm and a macrocosm in itself. So he says, this universe, this physical world, born out of an egg, it's just the egg of Brahma, uncreated, like it is eternal in its nature, in its prakriti, without limit or end, like this doesn't have limit or end, he acknowledges that the physical universe seems to be infinite, nobody has ever found any limit or end to it, so it is very great, that's why the tantrics have divinized it, but in Vedanta no, it says it's a darkness, born out of egg, uncreated, it's not created this darkness, this illusion, without limit or end, it is moved by love, and by karman, as the scripture unanimously says it. The scripture means shruti, the tradition, all the Vedic tradition. So he says, as the tradition says it, this world which is illusion, maya, it's moved by two things. By love, God is love and love is God, like in bhakti yoga, and by karman, karma. He calls it here karman, neutral. Like, it's the world of karma. In this physical world, it's only karma, karma, karma. Karma is the king. And then there is this factor called love, which is the presence of the transcendental Brahman in the heart of the matter. That even when your body is made of matter, and even if you don't have spiritual concerns in your love, in your life, I'm sorry, in your heart, there may occur love. And love can occur even if you are illiterate and totally uneducated. Love is a natural virtue, as Peter of Damascus puts it. Therefore, it's like love is present in the world as one of the messengers. So this world, he says, of ignorance is ruled by two powers. By karma, everybody goes to hell or not according to their karma, and by love which is the grace, which is the presence of the transcendent, the reflection of the transcendent. Fifth paragraph. There are 
I think we'll manage to finish them tonight because there are 12 of, of all, in all. It's a short text of 12 verses. Fifth statement. The spirit, Atman, the spirit on the other side. So this is not the darkness. It's not the physical world. This is the knowledge which is illustrated by Atman. That in the human being there is fire and ice. The ice is the dull, ignorant, dark, tamasic nature. And the fire is the light of the spirit. It's the immortal Atman. The spirit on the other side is not darkness. It does not make one blind. Like whenever you say, I got blinded by this or that, that didn't come from your spirit. The spirit gives awakening. Whenever your decisions are not blind, that comes from Atman. So he says, the world may be dark. Again, it's a non-tantric way of thinking. It, but the spirit on the other side is not darkness. It does not make one blind. On the contrary, it is knowledge and glows like the sun that shines in the egg of the world. In the egg of the world, in the egg of Brahma, there is the sun, which is a very funny symbol of something which is outside of the egg. The egg of Brahma is all darkness. But even in this darkness, as there is love, there is physically the sun. And he says this sun although it's a ball of hydrogen that explodes non-stop, it's the closest symbol that we have of the spirit. It's a sort of a vision of the spirit. It's a reflection of the spirit in manifestation. He says, this spirit, it is knowledge, and it glows like the sun that shines in the egg of the world, like the sun that shines in our solar system. This is how the spirit is. It's an analogy it's a simile that the, the spirit shines like the sun. This is a very important knowledge which is taken very far in Kashmiri Shaivism because that's where they say very clearly that the sun is like Shiva or Shiva is like the sun. Shiva is called Prakasha and Prakasha means self-effulgent light. For example, the moon is not Prakasha because whenever you see the moon, you see a reflection of the sun. The sun shines on the surface of the moon and it bounces back. If the sun goes off, the moon goes dark instantaneously. The moon shines because of the sun. It reflects light. It's not the source of light. But the sun doesn't reflect anything. The light is coming from within itself. It's self-produced. It's not from... You don't need to point a torch. Uh, uh, you don't need to point a laser pointer at the sun to see it. The sun is self-effulgent. This self-effulgence, called in Kashmiri Shaivas Prakasha, this is simply saying that the sun has been used in many traditions as a symbol of God. Either we talk about Apollon in the Greek mysteries, with the temple of Apollon in Delphi and others as a symbol, as the highest position in the Greek pantheon, or we talk about the sun god of Egypt or others and other Ra and others, we see that the sun has been often taken as a symbol. Like the real metaphysicians know that the sun is not God. At the best you can say that the sun is a deva, is a deity, 
a very, very relevant deity because if Surya Deva would pack and go, we would die in 48 hours maximum. So, of course, we depend on Surya Deva in this solar system. Surya Deva is our creator, protector, life giver, and everything. And therefore, the sun is important. And yet, the sun is not God. As Christian mystics like Francis of Assisi and others, they said the sun and the moon are like the right eye and the left eye of God. They represent God because you are looking in the eyes of God, and yet it's not God totally. So here, they use the same game that the sun can be interestingly used as a symbol because by using the principle as above, so below, in the physical world we see a symbol of something which in the spiritual world is like the sun. But that's the spiritual sun which is the spirit. So he says it is knowledge, the spirit is knowledge, glows like the sun that shines in the physical world. One has to grasp, this is now final statement here, in verse at number 5, one has to grasp this sphere of light and nothing else. The method outlined in this Upanishad is a little bit of a visual method. It's written by a visual person. Visual being the dominant uh, temperament, by the way, the dominant characteristic, so it will work for most readers. Basically here, the spirit is defined as an internal thing which shines like the sun, like visualizing the inner sun. In Ajna Sahasrara, this is not a tantric text and it doesn't mention that. There are other texts, even in, among the Upanishads, which go and would go down that line and they actually bring details. And here, this author says the spirit is like the sun, like the physical sun, only it's a spiritual thing. One has to grasp this sphere of light. The sun is a sphere of light. So is the spirit. Only the spirit is a sphere of light which might come in your crown chakra. So this sphere of light, one has to grasp it and nothing else. This is how you go to samadhi. This is how you go to spirituality. <clears throat> and uh, it quotes a beautiful quote from the Vedic texts, which says in paragraph number six, quote, the sun that shines up there is Brahman. Like the sun is God. It's a sort of a transition. It's a transitory thing. It's by transitivity that the sun is a symbol and through the symbol you connect to the real thing. You don't address the sun literally as such. So the sun that shines up there is Brahman. It has been said. That it has been said in the Vedas. It has been put in us. The sun which is up there and which is spirit. Or Brahman. It has been put in us. Like we have our own internal sun which is our Atman, our spirit, Brahman there, Atman here, this sun has been put in us, like the Michelangelo image, where God gives spirit by the touch with the finger to the first man, to Adam. It has been put in us thanks to the Ajapa Hamsa Mantra. 
It's a very popular subject in the Upanishads, and that's where most of this thing comes in Kriya Yoga and in other forms of yoga, that life is breath. Breath is the most visible sign of life that we have. As Thich Nhat Khan, a Buddhist author originally of Vietnam, used to say, there's a title of one of his Vipassana, Anapana books, Buddhist mindfulness books of meditation. He says, breathe, you are alive. Breath equals life. Life in the human being equals spirit. And thus, the spirit is visible in us via breath. And here, he says, thanks to this Ajapa Hamsa mantra, I am him. <coughs> it says I am him, although in Sanskrit, this mantra, Ham and Sa, it's something which we explain in the first level when we give you the so-called Tantric Vipassana, the Prana Uchara meditation, and we give you exactly this meditation, and one of the ways of doing this meditation with the breath is associating Ham and Sa, Ham Sa, Ham Sa, Ham Sa, two mantras, and thus this mantra is called in the Upanishads Ajapa. Normally doing mantras in India with a rosary or something like this, with a mala, it's called Japa. Japa Yoga, repeating mantras. And this mantra, Hamsa, is Ajapa, because even if you don't do it with a rosary, it keeps on going, because you are breathing 15 times per minute, and 80,000 or 30,000 times per day, whatever it is. So you are basically saying a mantra automatically all day long. And that mantra is Hamsa, Hamsa, Hamsa. And this mantra Hamsa is the Ajapa mantra. And it is the most visible and at the same time discrete demonstration of the fact that the son of Brahman is present in us under the form of Atman. We have Atman and we do Hamsa even unconsciously, even involuntarily. In the Vedantic tradition, this mantra Hamsa, which is supposed to be onomatopoeic, like it's a sort of a onomatopoeic sound, it is associated with Sanskrit words which are twisted, mutilated, like stretched. Like, you know, you say, how are ya? You know, in English or in American. And instead of you, just put a Y and A and an apostrophe, you know? Yeah. And everybody knows that you actually want to say you. So, yeah, instead of you, is just a mutilation of the word you. And like, you know, wannabe. You are a wannabe. It's actually want to be. But when you say it quickly, it's a wannabe. Right? So that's how you mutilate words even in English. You can do the same in Sanskrit. So instead of saying hamsa, you just take the first one ham and you put an a before it and then it becomes aham. And you take the second one sa and you put a visarga, a h in, in, the, in the end of it and it becomes sa. And aham sa in Sanskrit can be translated as I am that. And that can mean a tree. Or a boulder. But it can also mean Brahman. God. So when you say Ahamsa. You say I am that. Which means I am God. My Atman is of the nature of God. 
I have a drop of the ocean and Brahman is the ocean. My water in my drop is the same as the water in the ocean. Here you have H2O, there you have H2O. Aham, sa. But your breath does not do aham, sa. Your breath does hamsa, hamsa. So it's close. It's just close. It's a sort of stretching it a little bit. So it fits. They like this, this approach with hamsa, ahamsa. Or then you turn it around and you do saha, aham. And then it's not even sa, ham. Because saha with aham, the visarga with a, goes in sandhi. And it generates the, the letter o. And then you have so, ham. But your breath again doesn't do so ham. It's ham sa or sam ha or sa ham, depending how you take it. Which one you take first, the egg or the hen. It doesn't matter with which one of them you start. So these speculations are very famous in the Upanishads. And I often mention them in some of my lectures. Here you have a typical example that the, this Upanishad, Mahavakya, the great word, the great speech, it mentions this mantra, ham sa the Ajapa Mantra, and it doesn't forget to mean that conceptually, you can consider that it means, I am Him. It doesn't even say, I am that. It says, I am Him, like I am God, I am Brahman, the Lord, who said that and all this. So, it has, it has been put in us, so the fact that we have a spirit, an Atman, is because of the Ajapa Mantra, and the Ajapa Mantra is the symbol of us being touched by the Divine and having a spirit. The two breaths, inhaled and exhaled, like inhaling and exhaling, acquire this knowledge. Because they say, Hamsa, Hamsa, unconsciously, automatically, but they do. So it's like your breath knows that you are alive and that you are spirit. That's why so many systems of meditation relate to the breath. That's why the breath is one of the favorites. And pranayama and kundalini yoga and many of them use breath and the subtle breath which results from it. So the two breaths, inhaled and exhaled, prana and apana some people call them, acquire this knowledge. Acquire the knowledge of hamsa, I am him. By a prolonged practice, the adept, also acquires it. So if you sit and start thinking, Hamsa, I am God, I am Him, by prolonged practice, it won't happen in the first day, you will also acquire it. This knowledge will come to you. So if you just want to reach the ultimate knowledge, you just let your breath do your work, and you go with it by saying, Hamsa, and I am that, by our realizing that the meaning of Hamsa in Sanskrit can very well be, I am God, I am He, I am that, I am the Absolute, or whichever way you want to formulate it, which is exactly what Kashmiri Shaivism teaches as one of the core meditations. So he says, your breaths acquire this knowledge because they go in that place. You have to follow your breath because you breathe automatically and unconsciously. So you have to focus on the breath until you become one with your breath. And then as your breath acquires that knowledge, you will later, with a bit of a delay, acquire the knowledge. 
So he says by a prolonged practice, he uses the word prolonged, like don't think it's coming in 48 hours, not to discourage you, but not to give false expectations as well, because there are psychomental mechanisms which need to be fulfilled. By a prolonged practice, the adept also acquires it, meditating on the triadic spirit similar to Brahman and accomplishing in the end the vision of the Supreme Spirit, Satchitananda. These are wonderful little details given by the author, because he could say, well, do it and you will see. But he says, you acquire it, meditating on the triadic spirit similar to Brahman. Brahman, which is the absolute, can be described by a triad, which is exactly what Kashmiri Shaivism does. That there is Anuttara Paramashiva, which is the absolute, and Shiva and Shakti. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. En, Sof, Or. In India, Sat, Chit, Ananda. The triadic nature of God. So it, he says, you acquire it meditating on the triadic spirit similar to Brahman. Like Brahman is expressed for the human understanding by a triadic perception. That's why so many spiritualities use the triadic mysticism. God described as a triangle because that is the way in which we can relate to it in, a, in this way, in a, in a concrete way. And he says, and accomplishing in the end, acquiring, obtaining in the end, the vision of the Supreme Spirit. Reaching the Supreme Spirit, which is Sat Chit Ananda. In India, this triadic spirit is called Sat, pure existence, Chit, pure consciousness, Ananda, pure bliss. That's the very nature of the divine consciousness. So he says, you should connect the outer sun with the inner sun. You should connect the inner sun with Hamsa and the breath. And you should meditate on this I am Him. This here is the same as the life of the universe out there. I am Him. And this is also meditating on the triadic nature of the spirit. Because this Brahman, we say Brahman, but it is Satchitananda. This is how we relate to it. Brahman is a little bit too dry and too abstract. We need to give it a bit of a face so we can point at it. 7. Such a vision... So, it's obvious that the author of this text likes mantras, but he also likes this yoga of light. He likes the visual part of it. So, he says, just to demonstrate it, he said, such a vision shines like thousands and thousands of suns and cannot be extinguished. So, it's, it's an unreal light. You cannot physically conceive the light of thousands and thousands of suns. It's unbearable. So, it's obviously a transcendental light. It's a light of another kind. That's why they say the light of a thousand suns. Shines like thousands and thousands of suns and cannot be extinguished because of its omnipresent plenitude, like an ocean that cannot be emptied. It's omnipresent. This light is everywhere. And he calls it a plenitude. It can be described by the Buddhists as a void. But that void is full of light. That void is full of something. The, the Buddha nature. 
Therefore, in metaphysics, sometimes the nature of the Purusha is described as void. But that void is something. It's, as the Dalai Lama says, it's void of imperfections and it's void of vikalpas that could name it and define it. So it doesn't mean it's not something. So here it says this light cannot be extinguished. Like God, the light of God is eternal, unbeatable. It's forever because of its omnipresent plenitude. It's everywhere and it's something. It shines and he says like an ocean that cannot be emptied. As much as you try to remove the ocean, the ocean cannot be removed. You cannot empty the ocean. And thus, God is like an ocean, but it's like an ocean of light, which is omnipresent. Therefore, here, now. And then he says a beautiful thing, which addresses the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali which says, it is not this samadhi which is the ultimate goal of yoga. No, it is not the stopping of the thought. It is the union with Brahman. Because he sees God as triadic and as a plenitude, then he cannot address God as a void. Because he says samadhi in the view of Patanjali who had written his Yoga Sutra at that time, obviously then, which is the ultimate goal of yoga. Yoga is the stopping of the movements of the mind, says Patanjali in the Sutra number 2 of his Yoga Sutra. And he's, this guy calls the attention and he says, this is not this Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which is the goal of yoga, the stopping of the thought. It is the union with Brahman. It is Unio Mystica, as called in Latin. It's union with something which is full, with a light which is omnipresent and exists. It's not going into a hole, into a dark hole. It's union with something. So he prefers to describe the spiritual reality in a positive terminology instead of in a negative terminology, like it's an emptiness or a nothingness. He says it's union with Brahman. It is union with the Spirit. And he continues in the strophe number 8. This is very important. I would insist, but uh, I have said so many times things about this difference between the Tantric Yoga, the Samadhi with the eyes open, the, the Unmilana Samadhi, the Bhava Samadhi, the Sahaja Samadhi, as compared to the Patanjali Yoga, which goes only up to Nirvikalpa Samadhi and doesn't turn back to the universe to assimilate it, to drink it, to absorb it from a spiritual perspective, from the perspective of God. So here this text is very high because in this Upanishad he is talking therefore about Bhava Samadhi. He is talking about a Samadhi which is union with an existent entity which is the Absolute, which is Brahman. And he says, eight, number eight, the adept in, this med in his meditation, in this meditation, contemplates this light, so it's a meditation where you visualize light, he doesn't say where, but it's obviously in Ajna and Sahasrara, there are methods in yoga, in other Upanishads, which start from Ajna, go to Sahasrara, some of them in 
Vigyana Bhairava Tantra which go directly to Brahmarandra, directly to the top of the head and therefore to Sahasrara. So here, this is an early text and it's not tantric, so he doesn't connect it with the body too much. So he says, the adept in this meditation contemplates this light, color of the sun. Here in Agama we sometimes teach meditations with the color of dazzling white, like electric wire type of white, shining white. Here in this text, it's more like in Advaya Taraka Upanishad, another Upanishad which mentions this process, by calling it, saying, saying you visualize this light, color of the sun. It has the color of the sun, so it's golden white, golden yellow towards white. Of course, in India, the midday sun is dazzling white. It's like white hot. But of course, sometimes there is this yellowish hue which our sun, our Surya Deva in this solar system has. So the adept in this meditation, the one who reaches perfection, contemplates this light, color of the sun. Doesn't say where, which is, again, to be filled up by the guru with details. And by it... By contemplating this light, like there is only the light of the Spirit, like Ramakrishna said, I could see only light around and everything was made of this light of the Spirit. By it, by looking with this sun, he discerns all the forms, names all the objects, knows everything that exists. This is a favorite theory of the Vedantins, which says that if you go in the Spirit, in Sahasrara, from there you get everything, because you are like standing on the top of a mountain. This is a very important lecture, which we give in second level of Agama again, which is called the philosophical basis of yoga, where we speak about Purusha and Prakriti, the spirit and nature, and how the yogis understood this duality, and how to use it. And here, he mentions exactly one of the effects of it. He says, if you reach this light of the spirit, by it, you understand all the forms. Like we can say that these lamps have a rectangular form. This is coming from Purusha. Everything which is archetypal, and it comes from Purusha. It all comes from a one source. So all the forms are only externalizations of a unique principle. So by having access to the essence, you understand all the forms. You name all the objects because the names and the forms other manifestation of things, and the yogi, the adept of this, knows everything that exists. Basically, he says, if you go into this Ajna Sahasrara, there is omniscience. That's where the source of everything exists. And he continues with a beautiful verse, or he says, all that was called to life in the beginning, like everything was called to life. It's so beautiful. It's like not just saying all that was created. All that was called to life. Like come and live. The universe is called to life. It's taken out of the non-manifestation and turned into something which is called to life. All that was called to life in the beginning by the creator. Indra, lord of the four quarters. So, he knows everything that exists, all that was called to life in the beginning by the Creator, Indra, Lord of the Four Quarters. The Creator is Brahma. And Brahma is also Lord of the Four Quarters. I told you in Indian iconography, Brahma has four faces, which go to the four quarters. 
and then he mentions Indra. Those of you who did the level 4 of Agama, you know why. Because Indra is the lord of Muladhara Chakra, just as Brahma is. So some concepts concerning Brahma, Indra, Ganesha, they are all of them related with the cross and the four, the quarter of Muladhara Chakra. And in the yoga metaphysics, poetically and obliquely, you can use them almost like similes. So here he uses a bit of oblique speaking, which if you are not initiated, it's like, you say, what is he talking about? So he says, the yogi knows everything that exists, all that was called to life in the beginning by the creator, Indra, lord of the four quarters. And that's making things pretty clear. He who knows thus, so in this way, this kind of knowledge, this knowledge which is the source of forms, names, and everything that was called to life, he who knows thus is immortal in this very world. Like that's the one who has reached the spiritual emancipation. There is no other way to eternal life, surely. Like yogic texts, exactly like the statements of Jesus, they are like sometimes truly, truly and truly again, I tell you. Like, you know, don't have any doubt about this. This yogic author, he says, there is no other way to eternal life, surely. Like, you have to see, you have to reach the light of the Spirit. Only through the universal Spirit of God, from where all forms, all names, and all knowledge comes, only that way the human being reaches immortality. And he says something beautiful in the 10th verse. There are three to go. He quotes, first of all, from Yajur Veda, from, no, I'm sorry, from Rig Veda. Um, it's a Vedic text which says, by sacrifice, the gods sacrificed to the sacrifice. It's an incomprehensible sentence in which it says that he who sacrifices, the sacrifice itself, whatever the sacrifice means, it means I do uh, 300,000 mantras, that's a sacrifice. Or I'm doing Vedic fire by throwing butter into the fire. Or I'm doing whatever other sacrifice. Bhagavad Gita says one can sacrifice the breath. Like for 30 seconds you don't breathe. And you give that breath which could have happened in those 30 seconds, you give it to God. Because the breath is from God and is connected to God. So you skip one and you give it back. So the sacrificer, the sacrifice, whatever the sacrifice is, an internal thing or an external thing, and the target, the one to whom is sacrificed, they are the same. This is monism. Shiva sacrifices Shiva to Shiva. Who sacrifices and who receives it if Atman is Brahman? If I am the ocean, if I am that, then what's the meaning? This is one of the puzzles of monism. That in monism, in non-dualism, all these devotional practices which are external, you can still do them, but they lose their meaning because you do them only for the sake of a tradition, for the sake of a resonance. But otherwise, they don't matter because they don't make sense. If you give a flower to a statue of a goddess, who are you, who is the goddess, who is the flower? When all three have the same nature, ultimately. 
And that's why he says, by sacrifice, says Rig Veda, by sacrifice the gods sacrificed to the sacrifice. End of quote. These were the first laws. Like this understanding is very, very basic. This is before all sorts of mystical, occult, and other sorts of partial truths. This is like one of the root things. But of course, as you can see, that's why Rig Veda, you can't use it. If you give it, and you read, and it's ten volumes as thick as this, and all during those ten volumes like this, you read things like, by sacrifice the God, sacrifice to the sacrifice. It's like, it doesn't serve me for my yoga practice. And because of this, Vedas have to be explained and updated by so many other traditions. So he says, these were the first laws. And by them, the majestic deities, he says the devas, acquired the heaven where the siddhas of yore become gods, reside. He says the siddhas of yore, the perfect yogis of yore, having become gods, they reside in heaven, and the great deities, he calls them the majestic deities, by understanding this oneness, they also acquired the same heaven. It's a very twisted verse which says that if you understand this oneness by the sacrifice, the God sacrifice to the sacrifice, these were the first laws. This is the Sanatana Dharma. This is the religion before the splitting of languages and religions. The oneness. And by this kind of essential laws, the majestic deities acquired heavens where, which heavens? The heavens where the siddhas of yore, other spiritual practitioners of yore, who have become gods in their own turn, reside. When you will go to those heavens, you will find there the siddhas of yore. But their condition is very different. There is a beautiful interview, which is probably done some 10 years ago or more, with a very old Tibetan lama, living in a Tibetan monastery placed between uh, Dehradun and Musuri, somewhere in, uh, close to Rishikesh. I don't know if that man is still alive. And he, it was known that he did like 30 years of meditation alone in some caves. And then he came down and he was a big siddha. And at some point he shaved his head. He had one of these dreadlock head, which the Tibetan, some Tibetan yogis have. And then one day he shaved his head, which in their community meant he was preparing to die. Because he, they shave their head so that they can die more easily, so that it's more open here, and so on. And everybody was like, oh my God, the Lama is going to die. Look, he shaved his head. And somebody phoned to Dharamsala, to Dalai Lama, and told on him, you know, squealed on him. They said, Dalai Lama Ji, the, this Lama is preparing, he shaved his head, you know, he's like, and the Dalai Lama phoned back to, and asked to speak with that man. And he told him, Jack or Walter, whatever his name was, he said, don't die. Because Tibetan yoga is fucked. There are only two or three like you left in the whole community. And if you die, there will be only books and beginners left to tell that story. 
So he said, if you can, please don't die. Don't die, but we need you around here. And then this guy said, okay, uh, then I'm going to live till the age of 100 or something. You know, he just gave, he was a very, a bit of a nasty fellow, you know, like very dismissive, very, no, radical like this. And then he gave this answer and he promised to the Dalai Lama, okay, okay, leave me alone, okay, I'm not going. No, I'll be around here. You can see me still and for a while, no? And then the makers of that documentary, which is called The Yogis of Tibet, they came to interview him, among others. And they said, we heard the wild story about you, that you shaved your head. And he completely refused to talk about it. He was like really ironic and obliquely speaking. And he refused to talk about it. And then they started asking, but we heard you are really big in meditation. You have been many years in a cave. What did you do? And he kept on like, you know, you want to know how it is to meditate 12 years in a cave? Why don't you go and see for yourself? You know, it's like, why are you trying to suck it out of me? And he said, no, no, we have instructions from the tradition not to talk about our own adventures because it can produce some tall tales and stuff like this. And he was like very dismissive. And at some point he still liberated a few incredible words from his mouth. He said, yeah, you look at me with that zoom, with that camera. He pointed at the camera and he said, you look at me and you see me still as being one of the humans around. But he said, from where I sit, it's long, long time since I have been human. Like he simply told them to the face. I just have the body of a human body. I'm not a human being anymore. I'm only, my shell looks human. But what happened to me in meditation has taken to me to the world of the Siddhas and of the gods. I am something else. My presence in a human body is because I promised to the Dalai Lama. You know, it's like, I don't belong here anymore with you guys. But, okay. No, because I promised it to the Dalai Lama, so be it, a little bit more. And thus, he says... There is a heaven where the yogis of yore, the siddhas, he calls them the perfected yogis, they reside, and even the deities have made it there by these laws of oneness. And the 11th verse is apotheotic. It's like a mantra. You know, you can put it on the wall in your room or on your mirror in the morning when you do your kriyas and read it with loud voice, repeat it. Says... Remember, this is Brahman talking, allegedly. God talking. And he says, yes, I am the sun, supreme light. I am Shiva, light of the sun. I am Agni, light of the spirit or Atman. I am He, light of the universe. Aum. In the end, he just pronounces the mantra, the great mantra, Aum. This is... The statement, you know, like I define the fire of spirit, I define the light of spirit, I compared it to the light of the sun, I spoke about meditating on this light, and then he says, yes, even I who I am speaking now that we came to the trumps, I am the sun supreme light, not the sun Suryadeva. Suryadeva is only an intermediary image, is a symbol of something, is a go-between, is an in-between I am the sun, supreme light. I am Shiva, light of the sun, Prakasha, as I told you earlier. I am Agni, light of the spirit. Agni is the fire god. Even the fire is a form of light. 
and you can interpret it as an energy on Manipura, but you can also interpret it, and here he makes a trick. He says, I am the son, Shiva, Brahman, and then he says, I am Agni, the light of Atman, like God, Brahman, is the sun, and Agni, the fire, is Atman. Compare the fire to the sun. This is how you have Atman compared to Brahman. It's beautiful. It's like it's still fire somehow. It's the same metaphor of the ocean, only that now he talks about an ocean of plasma, an ocean of fire. And he concludes by saying, I am He, light of the universe, this light which is unextinguishable because it's plenum and it's everywhere. This light which cannot be extinguished, the nature of God. And then he says, Aum. Aum is perhaps like the North American Indian, how? No, like I said. It's perhaps like the Amen of the Jewish, Christian, Islamic texts. Amen. You know, so be it. So mote it be. It has been said. You know, it's like it's... So he simply says, I am, I am, I am that. Aum. And the last strophe is describing, now I gave you the teaching. This teaching should not have been given to everybody. It's for people who are interiorized and sattvic and want to hear the spiritual truth. And he draws the conclusions which are very inspiring and very empowering. He said to study this text. This text is a page and a half. It's not difficult to study it. To study this text quintessence of Atharva Veda. He says it's like you take the Atharva Veda and boil it down. That's the essence. To study this text, quintessence of Atharva Veda, is to be washed of one's sins. In terms of yoga, this means to have all your karma burned. To annihilate your karma. To finish your karma. It's put, the translation is like this, I left it like this, is to be washed of one's sins. I'm saying it because many Western students are brainwashed with hate against the Christian church, and then they hate the very concept of sin. Yeah, yeah, the priests and the church kept manipulating us with sins. I don't even believe that there is a sin and all that. Again, don't let yourself blinded by false knowledge. You can call it a sin, it's just a word, a word which designates negative karma. If you kill 10,000 people and then you go to hell for a long, long time, killing those 10,000 people was a sin. Either you like the word or not. You can simply say something which generates very bad karma. That's what a sin is. So to study this text, is just to study this text, is to be washed of one's sins. The one who studies it early in the morning, destroys his faults of the night. The one who studies it in the evening, destroys his faults of the day. The one who studies it morning and evening is liberated of all sin. And then he describes a discreetly an extreme yogic practice in this raving of his. He says, he who studies it at noontime with the face turned towards the sun, which is obviously a form of trataka in the sun, with the face turned towards the sun, is liberated of the five sins that make one an outcast. In India, there are five sins if you do, you are out of the caste. There are four castes. The Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the 
Vaisyas and the Kshudras, the commercial, the merchants and the Kshudra caste, the lowest of the caste. But there is one caste which is not a caste, caste which is lower than the others. Those are the outcasts. And the outcasts are the people who did something and lost one of the four ones. As having a four caste, even if you are from the Kshudra caste, you still have some rights. As an outcast in the ancient Vedic tradition, you had zero rights. That's why it's called a pariah or an outcast. And he says there are five in the laws of Manu, there are five sins described which make you become an outcast. And they are very funny for your information. The five sins, just to compare it with the modern world, the five sins that make one an outcast are killing a Brahmin, drinking alcohol, sleeping with a consort of your guru, stealing, or associating with a person who did any of those four before. Aren't we all outcasts? How, how little people care. Remember that 2,000 years ago, there were people who were guiding their lives about this. And they wouldn't have done these four things for their lives. For their lives, they wouldn't have crossed this line. Because it meant automatically becoming an outcast. But see, the Mahavakya Upanishad gives a solution. He says, you study this text, and he says, if you do it together with Trataka in the sun, you do it at noon with the face turned towards the sun, and you see this thing physically, therefore, don't do it without knowing how to do Trataka to the sun, because we teach this in Agama, and you have to learn to create diaphragms with your fingers, because otherwise you ruin your eyes and you go blind in a few weeks. You can completely ruin your eyes, so don't uh, do it by this. This is not a teaching, uh, this is a satsang. So, but they say here, the one who does, who studies it at noon with the face turns towards the sun is liberated of the five sins that make one an outcast. Like you can gain your caste back. You can destroy that. And of all other sins, of, all the, fi- of the five sins that make one an outcast, and of all the other sins, he attains the saintliness that is gained by the study of all the Vedas. If you do this, if you study this and practice this with the light, you attain the saintliness equivalent to studying all the Vedas. He attains the grace to live in communion with the great Vishnu. In regular India, Vishnu is a word which is very similar with the Christian word which defines God. Vishnu is the God that people understand usually. So he basically says, you go, you live in communion with God, which means you are in the bosom of God, you are in the kingdom of heaven. And it concludes beautifully without any number on it. All of them usually conclude like this. It says, such is the Upanishad. This was it. Tonight, you have heard the 12 verses text of a rare yoga Upanishad from India, which, which is in the spirit of the Indian spirituality, which keeps the spirit of yoga and of Vedanta and of the Indian spirit, the Mahavakya Upanishad, the Upanishad of the great word of the great Logos. With this, we have finished the satsang. Thank you all for having the patience and listening to the 
wise words. We will try to make the recording or even the text in some way available so that those of you who have been inspired, you can read it again and again. And as the text says, maybe early in the morning and then in the evening. And if you have too much aspiration, then once at noon as well, looking in the sun. And in this way, you can see how a text works, which is credited with burning the karma. Many people, I even required two notes in that post box at the entrance. We said, Swami, keep some lecture or something about the karma and about dealing with the karma. Here you have had an Upanishadic text which says it very clearly. You do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. You wash away all the sins, which means you burn all your karma. That's, it's very simple. Work with the hamsa and the breath and the inner sun and the upper sun and see the son of God, God as light, as the uncreated light, as prakasha. I gave you the detail in Ajna Sahasrara, preferably in Sahasrara, and do it until you see all forms, all names, all knowledge emerging from that. Then you have reached the samadhi of plenitude, a samadhi of communion with God, and uh, there are a lot of beneficial consequences that come from that practice, as outlined by one of the Upanishads. Again, thank you all for joining tonight. See you in the next satsangs. With this, we are finished.